Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at a very famous part of the Torah this morning. We are standing at the edge of the sea as we begin our Parsha. Uh, so the Israelites have, last week we saw that they were thrown out of Egypt after the final plague and God was going to dispose the Egyptians favorably towards the Israelites who borrowed lots of silver and gold uh, from their Egyptian hosts and now are uh, on their way to the to Israel. I mean, that's where they're going, right? They're being taken out of Egypt to go to Israel. How far a journey is that? About a week. That journey should have taken a week. Okay, short trip. So they're on their way for this week-long journey to the promised land, right? Okay. So if we've read the story before, what took... What should have taken a week, right? We're Jews. What should have taken a week took us how long? 40 years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. So we're going to uh, look at... about on the way. Yeah, exactly. Lots to talk about on the way. Um, so we'll start at uh, chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh grew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses... Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians? For it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? But Moses said to the people, Have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance which the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will battle for you. You hold your peace. All right. So the people are, right? The people are are coming, and they see ahead of them water, and and Pharaoh and his army, right, have come after the Israelites, and so the Israelites now see Pharaoh and his charioteers, right, drawing close. So the Israelites catch sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them, and like Reuben said, what do we do when we're afraid? Not only fetch. We want to go back to Egypt. Even more. What else? Complain to Moses. Complain to Moses. They turn on their leaders. The minute they are afraid, they turn on Moses. Right? And with a very heavy dose of sarcasm, they say, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out? What? Hillside was sold out? So you brought us here into the desert? Because, right, so, right, this is not a question. This is a heavily sarcastic criticism, right, saying you've essentially brought us out here to die. Thank you very much, right, for that, you amazing leaders of ours, right? So, um, and so, and we have no idea what this is about, verse 12. Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, let us be and we will serve that we have no indication of this anywhere in our text? So either this is a lost tradition, there's a lost conversation, there's some lost texts, which is very, no very possible. Um, it makes the most sense, actually, is that we've lost part of part of the story where this happened in Egypt, where they said something to Moses, right? Um, 
But in any case, we, we don't have any indication what that is. Um, well, I mean, they say what it is, but we don't, we don't see that anywhere else in the Torah. Moshe says to the people, right, have no fear. Al-tira'u. Don't be afraid. Stand and witness the deliverance which Yudhei will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yudhei will battle for you. Tacharishun. Shut up. <laughs> right? Essentially, stop talking. Stop panicking. Stop blaming. Just stop. And just watch. Stand still and observe what's going to happen on your behalf. All right. Bert? Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots, and his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. All right. Now... In looking at this, preparing for today, it's the first time this jumped out at me. And I've, so, just to let you know, I've been studying this for my whole life. I went to private Jewish elementary school, private Jewish high school. Like I've been studying this text my whole life. Um, that's a long so time. Far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so far, right? So, I'm 53. So you do the math. Um, <laughs> 53 in two months. So, um, <laughs> so it just says that we, no matter how closely we look at this, no matter how much we know, no matter how many times we confront it, there's still things, right? That it's like, oh, I never saw that before. So let's look at verse 17. God's talking. And behold, I will. Strengthen. We've talked about this word. There are two words, right? To make heavy and to strengthen. I will strengthen the heart um, at Lev Mitzrayim, the heart of Egypt, right? So either in this case, Pharaoh is the um, embodiment of Egypt. of Egypt, or possibly saying, you know, all of them, right? You know, like the the le- the heart of the collective that are coming after you. Well, you know, was Egypt the God, too. I mean, there's a God yeah. against God issue here. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so in any case, clearly Mitzrayim means, right, the enemy. Vayavau acharehem. And uh, so that they go after them. Ve'ikavda b'far'o u'v'chol chelo b'archavau u'farshav. So this word, I will be, what does your English say? How does it translate that next word? I will gain glory. I will gain glory. So ve'ikavda, um, so, and I will be glorified through far'o. Right, so it's the first time I've noticed that this is the same shoresh, right? This is the same root as what? Kavod. And kaved, which is uh, heavy weight. Yes, significant. And and in our story, what is the significance of that? Rita, we're here. She would tell us. <laughs> so glory. It is the root for glory. It is also the word the word for heavy. So God is going to be glorified. This shoresh, for those of you who don't read Hebrew, this shoresh to be glorified. So, but where else is this? Where else is this used? What else is it used for? 
So Pharaoh's heart. Uh-huh. <clears throat> right? That's when it means heavy. heavy. He's hard. The hard heart is this is the Shadrach. <clears throat> right? Kaved. His, his heart gets hard. It gets strengthened. But what, what, what strengthens the word we just used? But it gets heavy, like stone, like, right? Something that. So for the first time, I realized that this is a beautiful play on words by Torah, is that God is going to draw God's glory being, you know, kind of magnified in the world through the cavating of Pharaoh's heart, right? God's going to get more kavod by cavating Pharaoh's heart. All right. Linda, such a silly question. Is he going to get respect from the Jewish people now? Um, momentarily, yes. And then the minute things start to go wrong, like right after our portion, the next thing is they start complaining because they have nothing other than bitter water to drink, right? So, so yes, they gain, Moses gains respect for the moment because the minute something goes wrong, the minute they don't have what they need, what are they going to do? Not just complain. What are they going to do? Turn on Moses. They're going to rebel. They're going to they're going to blame their leaders. Right? It's one thing to complain. Why? Why me? It's always me. I hate this. It's so awful. It's so terrible. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, how could you let this happen, Lynn? How? Really? Really? No water. Nothing, Lynn. Really? Thank you very much. Right? There wasn't enough drought in Egypt. You had to bring us out here, Lynn, really? Right, so it's a whole other level. It's not just complaining. It's blaming somebody for what's happening to you, right? And so it's a really, it's a sad thing. And the, the years I have a lot of Rahmanas for Moshe, right, are the years I'm really in touch with how un, ungrateful the people are for all he's done and all that he's sacrificed and all the right that he's had to put up with to lead them. Can we go back a little bit to the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart will lend glory to God? We've been dealing with this for three weeks, right? So this is the central. Okay. This I'm is the, right, so <laughs> this is the central metaphor of yeah, this story. I can't leave. This I can't is leave. you can't leave. You can't or listen to the podcast. So we um, this is the central metaphor that we've been dealing with, right? In this whole narrative, in this whole story, is strength, the strengthening, the hardening of the heart of Paro, and it is that that's going to has elicited all of the plagues, and now is going to uh, because. His heart got strengthened so that he's coming after with his army coming after the Israelites. It's now going to elicit the response of God to split the sea. It's almost as if God has had enough of this. So clearly, clearly God knows that God is going to prove something to the Israelites through Pharaoh's continued hard heart, hard heart and obstinance. And that's part of the, that's part of the divine plan here. Um, a different way though the sentence let the Egyptians know that I am God when I gain glory through Pharaoh's chariots he's killing them all so he's gaining glory for killing uh, sure Israel. which sure. deal with in Passover sure yeah. with but not- we say in Passover this is not the important part we don't kill our enemies we, we don't, don't celebrate killing yeah <clears throat> don't worry 
Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, worry. Don't worry. We're going there. Um, But remember that in the ancient world, that's how your God wins. Your God wins on the battlefield. Your God doesn't win any other way in this world. In the ancient Near East, Baal wins when Baal's soldiers crush the soldiers of Pick one, Astarte. (laughs) That's who wins. That's who everyone now worships. When you're conquered, you now worship the God, right, that won, the conquering God. And look at the opposite in in the Holocaust. So many Jews blamed God for putting them into that position. How could God let this happen? It sounds like the same story in a modern time. For this, you... You got us all to this point, and now you wipe us out in the Holocaust? Right, so another conversation. Um, so, it's the same, um, same idea. Well, the, 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 the commonality between them is who's in charge? Right. If God's in charge, then, then God does all of it. There isn't anything God doesn't do. Now we get to pick. When are we going to start asking that question? We don't ask that question when I win the lottery. Right. Why? Why me? How could you do this to only me? With of all, right? We we only yeah. ask that question when tragedy strikes because it right. seems unjust. And how could a God who's all powerful, knowing, and all good do something right. that seems unjust? So that that's when we start asking the questions: Why me? Or why this people? Or why did that happen? Pretty primitive we, uh, question. It, it is not gone. The question's not gone. But the answer in the ancient world was: the most powerful God in the neighborhood is the one. Who wins the war? Right. This is our war story. We have to have it. Yes. If, if God doesn't win on the battlefield, God isn't the most powerful. We have to have this story. And yes. that's what we forget sometimes. It's like, wait, what? We're drowning our enemy? It's like, yes, we're drowning the enemy. You have to have that story or Yodhe doesn't prove to be the most powerful God in the region. What's different for, with our story is that God isn't just powerful in in Israel's territory, but everywhere. That is a move in the ancient Near East, right? So ISIS is reigns supreme where ISIS lives with her people, right? Now you also have someone who has got a similar name who lives in Canaan, who's Astarte, Ishtar. You've got the same kind of goddess figure, right, with different names, but she doesn't travel, she doesn't move. She stays and fights on behalf of her people. We believe Yudhe was probably a mountain desert god. And that's how we get Sinai. You know, that's how we get all that stuff is that Yudhe is this desert mountain god and doesn't travel until we get the development of early Israelite monotheism. So this idea that God is not just God here in Israel for us and Baal's the God for them over there but rather God is our God and God is the creator of the entire universe there's only one right force that does that and that force worked for us out of town worked for us in Egypt and in the desert and here in Israel that is a new idea Correct. That is a new idea. Jonna?
there's some so the I would say yes, except that's not exactly how the text goes. Um, yes, you're not wrong. I'm just saying the text says very clearly, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So this is the, this is the theological struggle with people who need God to be all good. Like, I don't have that problem, but some people do. They need God to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. How can an all-good God set up Pharaoh like this? It's George, George's problem every week these days is, how could God set up Pharaoh like this? It's, it's not fair. You're going to set him up, and then you're going to drown him and all of his people, and his people suffer because, because you hardened his heart so you could gain glory, right? So this is... This is the. That's a problem in our So the rabbis who need to live with this and need to live with God being all powerful, all knowing, and all good have to figure out a way for that to all stay true given the text. And so they say, well, actually, first, Pharaoh did have a choice and continues, right, to resist. And once that happens, God moves in to just strengthen the way we've chosen to go. That's what happens, right? That, you know, and so God, God now starts to intensify the process that Pharaoh himself set in motion and chose. But it's not there really in the text. Um, the text is very clear that here it is in verse 17. I'm going to gain glory through, right, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, essentially. This is anthropology 101. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Absolutely ancient Near Eastern anthropology. All right, so, but here's one of my favorite verses of Torah that we just skipped right over. All right, so verse 14, God will battle for you. You hold your peace. Moshe's talking to the people. Settle down. It's going to be okay, right? As if the people have not just seen 10 plagues, right? It's like, you just want to spank them, right? So, um, so Moshe says, settle down. Yudhe is going to work on your behalf. The very next line of Torah, one of my favorite in the whole Torah, God says to Moshe, Altitzak Eli, don't, why are you crying out to me? Moshe's not crying out to God. Who's Moshe talking to? The people. The people. So, what is this next verse of Torah doing here? God turns to Moshe and says, Matitzak, Matitzak Eli. What is this crying out to me? We have zero indication that Moshe's talking to God. This is where something's lost. Unless you look Generally, at something's, we agreed that something's lost. There's text that was here where Moshe was talking to God, right? But the, the people who are going to comment on this are, are many, many generations of, of rabbis, of course, understand this as a much deeper, much deeper teaching. So Mati, and we're going to look from Talmud, where, because I'm always bringing you these Midrashim, but we're going to look at it today. We're going to actually look at the Midrash um, that deals with this sentence. Um, so, so hold that in your mind that, that God says to Moshe, Mati Tzakelai, why are you calling out to me when that's apparently not what happens? Um, so you're going to lift up your rod, you're going to hold your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites march into the sea on dry ground. This is another place the Midrash tries to figure out what's going on here because there's no way you can have Yabasha, dry ground, Betochayam, in the midst of the sea. You, there is no, you can't, that, that's an oxymoron. You can't have dry ground if it's Betochayam in the sea. There's, that's impossible. So they have to deal with that. Although it does end up being mud. In the Midrash. No, no, but it ends up the pharaoh, the wheels of the chariots, don't they get stuck in the mud? It gets, it gets stuck in the ground. Oh, what, oh okay. 
right? So if we want to think of it as mud, we can. For the rabbis, they see yabasha, and it means for them, dry ground. So, I mean... What does the Hebrew say? I don't know. We have to get there. We're not there yet. All right, so... um, but good question, Sue. That's the way you think about it. Okay, 19. The angel of God, who'd been going ahead of the Israelite army, now moved and followed behind them. And the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took up a place behind them. And it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus there was the cloud with the darkness, and it cast a spell upon the night, so that one could not come near the other all through the night. Then Moses held out his arm over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split, and the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us free from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Okay, so there's the answer to two of your okay, questions. Does what does the Hebrew say? Hebrew says they go on Yabasha, dry ground. Yeah, right. And what happens to Pharaoh's chariot wheels? Well, God kind of locks them up. Locks them up. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So uh, look at look at verse 25 in Hebrew. Like they, that's where we get this business of the ofen, the wheels getting kind of locked. So that we're here we go again. What is that? You see the word there? Right. right? So they were driving bichvedut. Uh, ha, ha, ha. with difficulty anybody notice anything familiar in there oh right it's the same word they were they were kaved. they were right I'm not saying this is all the same word someone's going to listen to the podcast and write in grammatically that's not the, okay I get it that it's a different grammatical form but the shorish is the same the Shoresh is exactly the same. They locked up, so they moved forward with difficulty. But but the root is they were weighed down. That's the root of the word with difficulty, right? They were kaved. This, this is all over our story. It's Pharaoh's heart. It's the chariot wheels, right? It is kavod. It is God's glory. Like this Shoresh is used everywhere in this parsha. It ties everything. It is the thread running through, the literary thread running through the entire narrative. Because those are the main ideas. This is all about God gaining glory. It is all about what happens when we harden. Right? The consequences of hardening. And, right, that that's how we get stuck. <laughs> that's how we get stuck literally stuck right here right between the walls of war we get stuck in our lives 
hundred percent. So I mean, I think this. I mean, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful way to pull it all together, but you don't yes, it know it if you're not looking right at the Hebrew text. Or all right. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. right. Another question. Uh-huh. What the Hebrew word is in verse 20, it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. So in English... Machane means camp. It came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Okay. That's very different. Yeah. So in this case, and why they translate Machana as as army? Um, I, it's more like in this case, it's probably military camp, the encampment, right, of the Egyptians and the encampment of the Israelites. In the Egyptian case, it's clearly a military camp, and the Israelites have been turned into a military campaign. They're going to have to fight their way through the desert. Once they left Egypt, they become, right, and they're going to march. We're going to see, they're going to march in military formation, right? Tribes around the, once we get the Mishkan, the Mishkan's in the center and everyone encamps around it and everyone marches in a certain order. And that's, it's a military, because it's literally now a military force because they know they're going to have to fight. Bless you. It's clear that God who parts the sea. Yes. So where does that midrash come from? When the guy had northern. Not sure. Who's got your midrashic back? Who's got you? Who's got you? Who are the senior rabbi? Who's got you, girl? Job security. All right, exactly right. Job security. Um, all right, so we're going there. So um, let's get through this so we can go there. Twenty-six. Yeah. Then, then Yudhe said to Moses, "Hold out your arm over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen." Moses held out his arm over the sea, and at daybreak the sea the sea returned to its normal state. And the Egyptians fled at its approach. But the Lord hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Go on. Thus Yudhei delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea, and when Israel saw the wondrous power which Yudhe had wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Yudhe They had faith in Yudhe and his servant Moses. For the moment. Uh, we'll just always add that parenthetically. Thank you, Bert, for the dramatic reading. So we. Um, so dramatic stuff. Exactly right. So notice here that Moshe says to the people, Altirau, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But what, is, what does it say right here? Our, our whole big thing. What was the whole point of this? They fear God. So don't be afraid. But the result is, and it seems to be the desired result, they feared God. So is fear the goal or is fear not the goal? Right. So Rami Shapiro has a beautiful teaching that Moshe is talking. There are two kinds of fear. Right. One is the fear that paralyzes us. We can't do anything or we just like the army freak out right and panic and make stupid stupid stupidness right happen in our lives um and there's a fear that's closer to awe 
that right that, that orders that that then has a very different yes. right elicits a very different response and a very different result in our lives. So he's saying that Rami Shapiro teaches that uh, the fear there's a fear that liberates and a fear that freezes. And what Moshe is saying to the people is, don't panic. Th- that kind of fear, the kind of fear that freezes us. And he says that in general we think. I've ta- I know I've taught this before, but I love it. Ram- and this is all Ram- Rabbi Rami Shapiro who says that we think that the Israelites are afraid. What you know? Because yeah, here's Pharaoh, but also because they're going into the uh, the unknown, right? And and moving into the unknown is always terrifying. And Rami says that's crap. It's impossible to be afraid of what you don't know. Because you don't know it. How could you possibly be afraid of it? Rami says, we're, all, we're never afraid of the unknown. Yes, we're, we're afraid of what's happened is going to happen again. We're that where I've suffered, where I've been in pain, where I've been betrayed, where, I, where I've been hurt, that's going to happen again. I don't know the circumstances because I haven't been in that situation yet. But we're sure of what we're afraid of. We say we're afraid of the unknown. Rami says, impossible. We're afraid of what we've known. What about the fear of death? That's all the same fear. It's all the same. The fear of annihilation. It starts very young. Toddlers look at their parents for protection because they're afraid of of being... No, no. The state of being dead, sure, is unknown. But the fear of my annihilation is not unknown. Because we've experienced we, it in little bits. That's exactly right. Lives. Right. Every time we feel like our lives are in danger, our safety's in danger, whether that's spiritually, emotionally, physically, like we react very strongly, right? So that we know that we know that state of being afraid of being annihilated, being hurt, being whatever it is. I love this teaching, and that's what they're afraid of. And what he's saying is move just stop being afraid of that. You you're no longer slaves. So stop. There's a new possibility, right? You, but you have to be willing to not continue to react to the future the way you have, you, that you're reacting to certain parts of your past. That's never going to build you liberation. That's never going to get you redemption. That's never going to get you freedom, ever. And certainly after a close call with death in whatever capacity, so he, that will, does change your life and make you... A different person. That will lock up your chariot wheels every time. Yes. The minute we project onto the future, right. the ways we've been hurt in the past or failed or were embarrassed or humiliated, right. fill in the blank, whatever it is that most you know terrifies us in the moment, it's always going to lock up our wheels when we get caught in that. But there's another kind of fear, and that's awe, right? That's And we've talked a lot about that word in here, that the Hebrew word awe and fear are the same. And so this, these are Rabbi Rami's words. The fear that liberates is the fear referred to in the phrase, fear of yud heh is the beginning of wisdom. That's from Proverbs. This is a fear better rendered as awe. It arises when we see the terrifying reality, capital R. Remember, this is Rami. He's always calling God mm-hmm. reality, capital R. It arises when we see the terrifying reality of yud heh We are in awe of the wondrously stark and deadly power of a hurricane. We are in awe of the dangerously beautiful power of a tiger. We are in awe of glorious colors of death that transform the green trees of summer into the multi-hued forests of fall. 
We are in awe of a baby's first moments of life and an elder's last. From moment to moment, life, capital L, is awesome, gorgeous, deadly, and loving. It is the wild wealth of infinite possibility that awes us, and it is our awe of the infinite that empties our minds of isms and opens our hearts to compassion. This is a good fear, for it preempts any status quo and forces us to move on even as life moves on. Can you give us a copy of that? Sure. I will email that out because um, I didn't copy that. But that, th- that's the difference, that yes. the Moshe saying stop to the first kind of fear, the fear that freezes, and the, the place that they get to is seeing God in action. They have this response, as we do, as Rami just said so beautifully, to of, of awe watching Yudhe at work mm-hmm. in the world. I love um, the expression of A.J. Heschel, radical amazement. Yes. Which is, is has a whole, whole other sense. I mean, it's a similar sense, but it's about our reaction. And it's not just awe. It's, it takes it out of fear to some extent, and it takes it into that amazement. And I guess the fear is when you feel so small, when you realize how big things are. But we, yeah, I mean, we, but we could also say that that's when we're filled with awe. Mm-hmm. Like when I realize right. how small I am is also, uh, but, and, and I think what Rami is suggesting is how do you deal with that? Right? How do you, how, how does one stop the one and encourage, yeah. right, the other? And so, um, so Rami points to the words that Moshe uses, right? Stop. He says, he, he urges them, right? He doesn't urge them to move yet at that line. He says, stop. Just wait. You'll see, right? Um, take courage, right? He says to them, right? And, that's what has to happen before they can move, right? They have to stop and stop the panic, right, that is happening. And a corollary, if I may, to <clears throat> Heschel, Mark Twain, of all people, said, we have no, no fear of life before we were born. Why should we have fear of life after we're gone? Well, I have fear of life before I was born. <laughs> I, I do. Like I, I freak out sometimes when somebody gives me something that was from 1963, and I'm just like, oh my god, like I wasn't here. That's so weird. Like this was here, and I wasn't here. That that's awe? so bizarre. That like, that's, that's creepy. Awe. It's really, it's really creepy. Okay. Um, so the other thing I want to point out. <clears throat> Is that um, where where were we? Where's the verse of God says, "Why do you cry out to me?" Yeah. yeah. All right, we're good. Um, all right, let's let's go. Oh, oh, I didn't keep one. Where's the midrash sheet? Thank you. Does everyone have one? Okay, good. We don't have the first one. There's only one. There's one page. One side, one page. And I want to thank Eleanor for literally cutting and pasting for us. All right, so we're going to go uh, to Sue's question. Susan, we're going to your question. Look at number 82. Yeah? It is taught. This is from Talmud. The question was, it says very clearly that God splits, you know, God moves the water. I don't want to say splits. God, God blows the water right 
to one side, then how come we always get this story about the dude Nachshon who goes into the water, yada, 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 when it clearly says that God did it. Okay, it comes from the Talmud. This is a wonderful book. You've got the title and your editors. Um, Sefer uh, Haagadah. This, these are Agadic texts taken from the Talmud. It's, about, it's a book this thick and this big. So it is the collection of parts of the Talmud that are Agadic, meaning legend, not the halachic texts. There's halacha and Agadah. Right? Yes, related to the word we use at Passover. Haggadah, the telling, the legend, telling of the legend. Right? So Agadah is legendary texts. Halacha are legal texts. Long ago, people knew some people wanted to study Talmud for Halacha, and some people wanted to study it for Agadah. So Bialik is one of the, Chaim Nachman Bialik did this with the um, Agadic texts to make it accessible. Um, and so here we go. So this is where it comes from. All right, here we go. Tanya Rabbi Meir, Omer. So the so Rabbi Meir is teaching. Amdu Yisrael al Hayam, right? When Israelites stood at the sea, Shabbatim Menatchim Zeh The tribes start fighting with one another. Ani yored I'm going to be the first to go down to the sea. Vizel Meir, Ani yored And the other one says. I'm going to be the first to go down to the sea. And as they stood there fighting, the tribe of Benjamin went forward and went down first to the sea. So then the princes of Judah began throwing rocks at them. Because that's what you do. (laughs) Right? So they start... So Judah starts throwing rocks at Benjamin, at the tribe of Benjamin. And for this reason, uh, Benjamin gets the great honor of having the privilege of becoming host for uh, the Almighty, right? For God, says your English check says what, Almighty, right? All right, so what does that mean? So there's a few things you need to know. There's an anomaly that, where is the temple built? In whose territory? What tribe? The temple's built in whose tribe? Judah. Judah. So how come it says the Holy of Holies? That's how Benjamin, because Benjamin went down first, that the tribe of Benjamin gets the Holy of Holies. Isn't the temple built in the territory of Judah? So the answer is you have to know, as the rabbis did, that the temple is built within the territory of the tribe of Judah except for one tiny finger of the tribe of Benjamin that cuts in and that is where the Holy of Holies was. There you go. I did not say it. All right. So the so the rabbis are going to play with this, right? The rabbis, the, the people sitting around this table, remember we said this is the game. This is what they spent their lives becoming professionals at. This is their game. This is the NFL, right? Top league of folks are the people we have in the Talmud, right? So the game is, um, they know that. So they have this whole midrash about, so why, you could ask it the other way, why is the Holy of Holies in the tribe of Benjamin and the whole rest of the temple in the tribe of Judah? Here's why. (laughs) When they were at the sea, (laughs) right, so... Benjamin says, let me be first. The tribe of Benjamin goes down. Judah's like, what? Throws rocks at them because they want to be first, um, right? And so so Benjamin wins the privilege of becoming host for 
the Almighty, because God's presence, remember, is going to rest on the ark, which is in the Holy of Holies, right? So that's how Benjamin wins that privilege. As is said, and we get a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, he dwelleth between his shoulders. When you look at one of the last, Zotah uh, Bracha, the last parsha of Deuteronomy, and each tribe is being talked about, uh, you know, uh, what's good about them or whatever, um, it says God dwells between uh, his shoulders, meaning Benjamin. Okay? So they bring a proof text. We have proof. The Torah tells us God... Right? Okay. So here's your proof. Wonderful. Case made. Rabbi Judah said to Rabbi Meir, that is not exactly how it happened. Not so was the thing that happened. Right? This is very typical in Talmud. This is how we got to be who we are, people. Right? Here it is. There's two proofs from Torah. If you prove it from Torah, you're done. But <laughs> you're not done because another rabbi says, mm-mm, the guys on the other side of the aisle saying, it did not happen like that. Both on the same, both part of the same story. We can't even tell a story without <laughs> nah, <laughs> right? So here comes the other version. Rabbi Judah, that's not quite how it. In fact, one tribe said, I will not be the first to go no. into the sea. And another tribe also said, I will not be the first to go into the sea. And while they were standing there arguing, Nachshon, mm-hmm. the son of Aminadav, by the way, of the tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. sprang forward and was the first to go down to the sea. Because it was Nachshon who ran forward, Judah got royal dominion in Israel. As it is said, here comes a proof text from Torah, right, from the Psalms. Judah became God's sanctuary Israel, his dominion. For what reason, accordingly, did Judah come to have God's sanctuary in in Judah's territory and obtain dominion over Israel? Because the sea saw him and fled. Saw who? Nachshon. We have a quote from Torah. It's right here. Look at Psalms. It's proof. Psalm 114, verse 3 says... The sea saw him and fled. Must be Nachshon. Has to be. All right. All right. So everybody brings their proof, right, for their version of the story. This is where the story of Nachshon originates. Right here. Now, in this particular case, he kind of had Deuteronomy against the Psalms, and they were both considered equal. Oh, absolutely. They're all the word of God. Okay. Even yep. though Deuteronomy is... They're all they're all the word of God, and therefore they're all viable as proof texts. So the psalm says, I mean, it starts off that this is a legend, right? But now they're quoting the book of Psalms, saying that Nashon was the first one in. And of course. Okay. Of course that's what it means. Well, no, I, it's, so it's not. They have proof. They have proof. It's right there in Torah. But not named in the psalm, is he? No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just a person. Yeah. It just says he. The and, it, and he can mean it. Yeah. So I'm sure, right? It's a reference to it. The sea saw, or he means God, or like okay. the sea saw it, or him, and fl- and and moved. Just Has to be Nachshon. Has to be. Right. This. Okay. So he, how does rabbinic reasoning go? How do we know? There's an argument. How do we know? Because it must be that Yaakov wore a strimal. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yaakov wore a strimal. One of the rabbis says, how do we know that Yaakov wore a strimal? Like, where does it say that? Where's your proof? 
right? Where's your proof text that Yaakov wore a strimal, right? So the other rabbi says, absolutely there's proof. Looks at the book of Genesis and says, and Yaakov left his house and set out. So the other rabbi said, so if he left his house, he had to have been wearing a strimal. Would Yaakov leave his house without one? It, this is rabbinic reasoning, right? So you... But you ha- you can shake your head, but you ha- you have to play the game. Yes. They know this is a game. This is their whole life. They get expert at this game. I think football, to be frank, <laughs> is pretty stupid. Compared to this? It's stupid. Like, you, you throw something so a bunch of people... You, why would you want to catch something so a bunch of people can knock you down and jump on top of you, <laughs> causing head injuries constantly? Like, why would you want that? Right? So, but I get it that... It's the game, and some people love the game. This is the game that they love, and they were experts at it. So we are novices, all of us. But we're, so we're just gonna, you know, go on the field. And when I watch Georgia play, okay, I get it. Like I'm like, yeah, go, and I'm screaming at the TV. Okay, I get it. But so that's what we're gonna do here. We're gonna, even though we don't usually like, we're usually like, what? We're gonna play the game. In the meantime. Moses was standing and praying at great length. All right. Nowhere do we have anything about that. But why is that here? Because they have a problem. What's their problem? Why is this line here? What is it answer? What's the question? We always have to ask the rabbis, what question are they answering? The delay. Going into the uh, Red Sea. The delay while the tribes were arguing. No, no, no. It's something from Torah. Of course it is. All of a sudden, we have God saying, why are you crying out to me? So the rabbis are answering that question. Where do we see Moses? Right there. Meanwhile, Moses was standing and praying at great length. The Kaddosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One of Blessing, says to Moshe, my beloved are on the verge of drowning in the sea, (laughs) and you're spitting out long prayers before me? Moses spoke to God, but master of the universe, right? What else am I supposed to do? Like Moshe himself in this version is clueless. He's panicking. He doesn't know what to do. And God says, speak to the children of Israel that they go forward, lift up thy rod. Right? So this answers why God is saying, why are you crying out to me? This is the second time, at least today, that it looks like God is saying, Moses, you're just not the brightest guy I've ever chosen. Is there a reason for that? I mean, he seems to be dissing Moses. Um, I think for the for the rabbis, I don't think Moshe's being dissed so much as it is. They're trying to they're trying to play with those holes that we see in the text, and they're filling them in that that. Moshe was talking to the people, not to God. Right. So that's a problem. But they have the opportunity to say, it's because Moshe was praying. Oh my God, the Egyptians are coming. Nothing's happening. And, you know, a davening. Actually, they, imagine, they've got Moshe davening. Right? He's davening Mincha. He's davening Mincha. He's davening Mincha. And God, so, but that's what, that's what they do every day. Do you see the tongue in cheek? Do you see the... It's a beautiful criticism of their own system. They daven three times a day. The whole service, right? Speed mumble davening, right? There's a reason that evolved, right? Because the quicker you get through it, but you have to say every word, right? And so 
They're, they have Moshe davening. <laughs> And, right, shuckling and davening the whole mincha service, right? And God is saying, yo, my people, my kids are about to drown and you're davening mincha? <laughs> Do something, right? And so you, you need to act. And so in a way they're playing and criticizing their own systems lack sometimes of action and like laying it all at God's feet. Like praying, you take care of it. And master of the universe says, no, you need to raise your rod and tell the people to move. Get in the that get in the water. That is what's going to affect things in this world, not shuckling and davening to me. Remember, this is like it's beautiful years later. This yeah. is like four hundred. It was codified right around four six hundred. Well, it's an interesting message, bro. Yeah. I mean, this this is right. It's the evolution of Judaism. And God is saying, "Do it." Stand up. Do something. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right, and and I love that the rabbis pick up on that. It's the rabbis who are saying, "Tell the people to move forward." It's completely counterintuitive to tell people to move forward into water when Pharaoh's coming. Like that does not seem like a solution. But like the rabbis early, like it's lovely for me to read Rabbi Rami Shapiro. But the rabbis really early picked up on this as a spiritual teaching that there's times to pray. And there's times to move. There's time you pray and there's time you're like Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, and you pray with your feet. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's look at 83, who, that goes exactly to this. Speak, speak unto Israel. Here we go. Daber el Israel vayisa'u. Speak to the people of Israel, right? And have them move. Amar Rabbi Elazar. Rabbi Elazar says, Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu Moshe. So Rabbi Elazar is saying that the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Holy Blessed One said, or as we called it in rabbinical school, KBH, the KBH <laughs> says to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the KBH says to Moshe, Eit lekatser ve'et l'ha'arich. There's a time to shorten and there's a time to lengthen. Right? So my children are in great distress. The sea is closing in on them. The enemy is in pursuit. And you stand here praying away. Speak to the children of Israel that they may go forward. So exactly what we were just saying, they were very clear about it right here. Right? That there's a time to do the short version, right? And there's a time to do the full-on shakri service, you know, complete with a sermon and a Torah service. Right? There's times for... They're in distress. This is not the time to dive in the whole chakra service, right? And give a lengthy drash, right? In the middle of it. It is time to move, to do something. All right, so 85, here we go. We had this problem before. So they come, the people of Israel, into the sea on dry ground. Right? If it's in the sea, why does it say bayabasha? On dry ground, ve'im bayabasha, lemabitochayam. And if it's dry ground, then then what is this business of it being in the midst of the sea? Ela mikan atala made shalomikra lahem hayam ad shibatul lutocho ad hatmam ve'acharkach naaselahem yabasha. So 
how, how can it possibly be both? Well, it can't, is what they're saying. Um, it, it really can't. Um, so something else must, so that means something else. So what does it mean? Well, obviously, right? Obviously, it can't be both. So then what is it? We learn from that that it was not split for them until they stepped into it. Do you understand their logic? How, how does the logic go? It can't be both. So what does that mean? It, it proves to us it, it that it didn't action. split until they went in. How does it prove that? But but how is that? How does that solve the problem of it's both in the sea and dry land? Because it was when they went into the sea that it parted and became dry land. This is this is this is the beauty of the rabbis. This is gorgeous. It can't be both. You, it's either they went into the sea or they went on dry ground. It cannot be both. Therefore, it must mean they went into the yam. They went in to water. And then it became yabasha. That's, it isn't both. Of course it can't be both. It was water. But if they went into the water, they're not on dry ground. If they're on dry ground, they're not in the water. So that must mean they went into the yam, and then it became yabasha. It's beautiful, because what are they going to do with that? They're going to say, there's the miracle couldn't happen until they went in the water. It's a whole different business to say, God split the sea, and they went into the sea. So what? What's the big deal there? The big deal is God there. Okay, we know that's a big deal. Like, it's supposed to be. Like, God's going to get glorified, la, 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 la. But for the rabbis, the bigger point, the bigger message, the bigger miracle is that they pushed in when it was yum. When it was water, they trusted enough to move in. And then, and only then, could it become yabasha. So that's very empowering. Very empowering. Because it wasn't some outer force, it was their own action right. that produced it. This is what people miss about the rabbis. They are, we think they're all just always about glorifying God and always about defending God and always following the rules and always following the law. That's all we think. When you start reading their actual words, mm-hmm. it's subversive. It's even more, Sarah. Yes, it's empowering, but it kind of takes some power from God, doesn't it? And, and locates that in us. The miracle happened because they moved in to the water while it was still yum, while it was still sea. And it's a that undercuts, in a way, the, the glory of God and moves it to people. And that's, that's what they want to do in their lives. They want to move the focus from God. Of course, they're always praying to God. Of course, they're always using God's name. Of course. But what they're doing a lot of the time is moving the focus from God into, so what does that do for us? It makes us partners. And so they, it, they, I think it's beyond relationship. Yes, it's about, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. I think it's even beyond. I think they are being subversive in a really important way. They're saying God, in fact, doesn't matter all that much. What matters is how we act in response to God and the reality. When we act in godly ways, when we show the courage to risk drowning 
because we trust that the universe is constructed in such a way that the water will part, that the miraculous and unbelievable can happen. When we act like that, then the water parts, right? They, they're pulling the focus to, yes, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the master of the universe, does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really? It's about when we act in response to that, like Rami's thing of awe, when we get to that place of experiencing awe, then we make possibilities in the world that could not exist without our willingness to act in crazy, wonderful, awful ways. Jana? Nachon. Nachon. Yes. 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 Ein mukdam umeuchar batora. One of the, one of the, right? Of course, you're like, of course. So, is one of the tenets of exegesis when the rabbis are doing exegesis on these texts, on the on the Torah text, they have one. There's there's many rules about how you do exegesis, but one of them is um, there is no early or late in Torah. What does that mean? The time frame is the time frame is irrelevant. <clears throat> you. Right, that that it's all the revealed word of God. They're all true for all time. God forbid this is about God splitting the sea. God forbid. This is about, right, you know, us creating possibilities in the world that are so that's true for all time. And so because these things are true for all time, every pasuk, every sentence, every you can mix them around. So does that does that make sense? So no one's doubting that Moshe raises, you know, a rod, but that's not what splits the sea, say the rabbis. Yes, Moshe raises his rod and the sea parts, but that's not what did it. What did it? The people taking the steps. So there's no direct contradiction, right? Moshe raises his yacht. Of course, God is the one who, who makes the miracle of actually moving the water, Right? It doesn't just happen, God forbid, something like that. It's intention, right? God is acting on behalf of the Israelites. But the rabbis are reading a whole nother scene in there that goes between the people panicking and Moshe's hand going up, right? And so they push into the sea, right? The sea starts apart. Moshe raises, you know, they're just filling in another, right? And of course they know, of course they know what the text says. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're not denying that. Generally, they don't. Sometimes they completely turn it on its head and completely contradict it, but generally not, right? So they're going to make it work with the text. But always, if it says, first they did this, then they did that, you can can reverse it. Yeah. Would you have to conclude from the Talmud that if the Jews had not gone into the sea, God would not have split the sea? So, God forbid we go there. <laughs> but the rabbis would say, God forbid, we can't even ask that question. But but they seem to be implying, yeah. and not that God wouldn't, it's, they seem to be implying that them moving into the water was a critical component of affecting the miracle. Like when it says that the, the people cried out and God heard them, 
and says, I'm going to come down and check it out. What, where was God before? God mm-hmm. didn't know before. God didn't know they were enslaved for 400 years and suffering, right? And the rabbi's answer is until the people cried out, God couldn't do anything. A critical component of it happening in their world, in their realm, was they had to cry out. They had to object. They're not going to ask the question the other way. That's heresy. They're not going to ask. So God couldn't unless they cried out. They're not going to ask the question that way. We we do. They they wouldn't. Don't you find this though, like putting the, the lamb's blood on the doorposts? God looking for a sign before he acts. God looking for people to participate yeah. and right. act. Before tr- God will, will Correct. Act. That is what they want to focus on. Is, is, that is what they're trying to say, that we must act. Before God will. We can't say to God, okay, so fix it. Mm-hmm. We, th- in the Holocaust, we can't look at God and say, kill the Nazis. Wait, right? You, you have to. Go kill the you have to go kill the Nazis yourself. You have to form an underground resistance. You, share the you have to act. Yeah. So acting is faith. So I would say, of course, people can act without faith. Sure, they can. So lots of people form a resistance to an unjust, oppressive government, and they have no belief in God. But but if we're going to start parsing words, what? do they have faith in? They must have faith in something or why fight, but it doesn't need to be God. I have faith in freedom. I have faith in the human capacity to, you know, whatever, transformation, like, right? So, and it's our obligation, right? Because no God's going to do it for me. If I don't believe in God, then, or a God that acts, then in response to my prayer, then we have to be the ones who act. There's no other option, right? Um, But I believe if we're, again, I don't want to, I don't want to hammer on the words, but I think, yes, people have to have faith in something or why risk? Why risk your safety? Why risk your life? Unless you have faith that change is possible, that, that we're responsible for our own destiny, that right? So, yeah, I would say you need faith in something. Yeah, I just, you're using the word we, and it's really one person in this case who did it and others follow. So again, it puts much more burden on the individual. So, so in this Midrash, uh, yes. Nachshon goes first and then yes. everybody goes. But, but, but right before that, it says the tribe of Benjamin went. Like, so on the same page, no, it's the tribe of Benjamin and, and Nachshon. It's two different stories. There, there isn't just one story well, about how this happens. I see. I thought they fought over who, while they were fighting... Now Sean became the uh, yeah. That's what ra- the second rabbi says. The first rabbi says this is how it happens. The second rabbi says, Mokacha. That is not what happened. Okay. On the same page. It, here's, here's the distance of text between one version and the next version, right? I got one point out of two. Well, very good for me. Right? <laughs> exactly. So right, <laughs> right there. Okay. So so the this is called um, Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of the song, because look at chapter 1431, right? They they had off. We're gonna go with Rami's teaching, right? They had awe of God. And they believed faithfully in Yudhe right? It's about flipping time, right? For now. And in Moshe, God's Eved. God's what? What is an Eved? 
And Ebed is a servant. What also is the word Ebed mean? Slave. It's the same word. This group of slaves now trusts in Yud Hey Vav Hey and Moshe, God's slave. God's servant, right? So they are moving from, the idea is to move from being Ev Avadim, slaves, Avadim Hayinu, right? You've been a Dina Benzader, right? So Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves. They're moving from that to being Ovdei Adonai, servants of God. That is the whole point of the redemption, people, by the way. That is the point of the redemption, so that I can be for you Elohim God right that, that is the point of taking us out of Egypt not just to be free mm-hmm. like, that, there's, there's no, that makes no sense in, in our mm-hmm. worldview here like that they're just to be free because freedom is a good thing I took you out of Egypt to be your God to be in relationship to you, to have you build a society because you're now free, to build a society based on what I'm going to tell you is just and right and good and compassionate and righteous. That's why I took you out of Egypt. And this is the part we forget. Obligation to we, we often think about freedom from and not freedom to. And it's the two that the Torah cares about. That's the whole business. So this is Shirat Hayam. The rabbis instituted the practice of my birds are falling down. Um, the rabbis instituted the practice of reciting the, the shir, the song, every day. So growing up, I recited the psalm in my classroom as we did Shachri, as we daven Shachri. Um, we did the song at the sea every single morning. Out loud. Um, and so it is my custom when we get to Shabbat Shirah to read it from Torah. Is there somewhere I can do it over here? All right, how about, I'm going to put it here, and then anyone who wants to see can come. Is there any rhyme or meter to this in Hebrew? Hebrew poetry, biblical Hebrew poetry is not about rhyme. That is not what makes Hebrew poetry clever or high art. Um, In biblical poetry, it's usually about saying the same thing two ways. And they're couplets. They tend to be couplets. You'll see um, in your book also the tradition is to keep the scribal tradition, even in a printed Bible, to um, to render the shear, to render the poem as it is in the Torah. So how, that's why it looks like it does in your book. All right. So if you look at it, how this is a scribal tradition that's been preserved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, is to write out the song at the sea like this. Tell me what this looks like to you. It's, it's, it's what? Like the bricks. Like bricks. Right? So they made bricks, which I showed you a few years ago because I do this every year. Um, so they look like bricks. So the way the words are laid out, the white space look like bricks. And, and it's done the way you lay brick. You see how this word overlaps this word? Um, so they're, they're stacked because that's how the wall holds together is that each brick rests two sides on the brick below it, right? And so that is how the shear is laid out. Uh, we, we've left the business of making bricks, right? That's, that's what the shear is celebrating is that we've lost, um, that we're not lost, that we're redeemed from 
the condition of when we had to make bricks for our pharaoh. Right. We are supposed to relive it every day. We are supposed to renew our emunah, our faith, our sense of awe, our connection, that the impossible is possible every single day. If, I'm going to add, if we act. If we're ready to act on that, the impossible can happen if we have full faith. And so we're supposed to redeem ourselves. I mean, remember that we're redeemed every single day, that that condition happened because here we are. That's the proof redemption happened. Here we are. Free, right? All right. So the song at the sea. Az Yashir Moshe Uvene Yisrael et Hashirazot Ladonai Vayomru Leimor Ashira Ladonai Kiga Oga Asus Verochovo Rama Vayam Azi Vizimratya Vayili Lishuaz Elivian Veu Elohea Viva Romemen who Adonai Ishmilchama Adonai Shemo Markevo Parvachelo Yara Vayam umivchar shalishav tuvu v'yam suv teomot yechasimu yardu b'mim tzlot k'mo aven yemin ha'adonai nedari b'koach yemin ha'adonai tiratz oyev uverov geoncha taharos kamecha teshalach aroncha yochle mokakash uveru achapecha nermu ma'im Elim Adonai, Mikamochan Darba Kodesh, Noratilot, O Sefele, Natita Yemidha, Timla Emo, Aret Nahita Behastaha, Amzuga Alta, Nehalta Beoscha, El Neve Kodsheha Shamu, Amai Mirzun, Hilahaz Yoshfe Plashet, Azniv Haluafedom, Elemo Avikozero Adnamo. Leolam va'ed Adonai loch Leolam va'ed You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.